Well, it's always pretty common for people to say it would be easier to believe in Jesus if I could just see Him. You may have heard that before. I know I have. But we're going to see at the end of our text tonight that Aaron just read that even those who had seen Jesus prior to His death and prior to His burial and prior to His resurrection and prior to His ascension, when they saw the empty tomb, they still doubted. When they saw the empty tomb, they didn't believe He had risen from the dead. But the women in our text... They, they also didn't want to wait to believe until they saw Him. Our text says that they believed when they remembered His words. And I believe Peter did the same thing. And beloved, the words they remembered, the words that they believed are the same words that we have been reading and hearing, both read and preached throughout our study of Luke. They're the the same words that they believed are recorded right here. And so the question before us, really the question that's been before us from the beginning, but the question that's before us tonight is what are we going to do with those words? What are we going to do with His words? Because His words are words of life. Our outline from the text, again, that Aaron just read from uh, chapter 23, verse 26 to 24, 12, uh, is going to look like this. The, The tale of the tomb is going to have three points. First, we're going to look at the road to the tomb, and we're going to Look at the four specific statements that Jesus made both on His way to and then on the cross. Secondly, we're going to look at the occupied tomb. And then finally, we're going to look at the empty tomb. And this is our custom. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Uh, Father, by Your Spirit, would You grant power to uh, the preaching of Your Word this evening? And would you grant all uh, within this place the spiritual ears to hear and and, and eyes to see that we might appraise and apprehend the truth of Christ and His gospel. Awaken our attention this evening. Convict us and challenge us and then then come along behind and, and refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. Always. I am, as always, I am unfit for this task to which you've called me, and so I'm in need of your grace and the filling of your spirit that I might do something good for you and your church. May that be so. And I ask these things for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen. Let's look first at the road to the tomb. Having been delivered over, to the will of the people, right? That was the last line. We looked at the last verse in in, uh, verse 25. Jesus began walking this road to the tomb. But He didn't walk alone. 
verse 27 says that he was being followed by a great multitude of people as well as women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But that, but that mourning and lamenting was misplaced. And I say that because they were missing what was taking place right before their very eyes. And that's because it was customary for a criminal to carry his own cross uh, to um, be crucified upon. And this was obviously a very arduous task that Christ, having been beaten by Pilate already, it was going to be very difficult or maybe even impossible for him to do on his own. So the Romans uh, decide to enlist someone to do it for him, and they grab a man by the name of Simon from Cyrene. And Simon takes that cross and he begins to follow Christ up to the mount. And in so doing, he provided a perfect illustration of what was and would take place in those moments ahead. Because we saw last week that Jesus was innocent, right? He was innocent, though proven guilty. And so the cross he was carrying, while it was his cross, because he would die upon the cross, this cross was actually the cross of sinful men for whom and in whom and in whose place he would die as a spotless sacrifice. So when the cross was placed upon Simon and Simon begins to carry it and begins to follow Jesus, we have this picture as, as, as he follows Jesus up the road of Calvary, the people are seeing the Messiah, the one and only Savior walking to the point, walking to the place where he would die on behalf of those who would choose to follow him. Like Barabbas last week, I'm not saying that Simon confessed his sin and repented and and turned to faith in Christ. We're not told what Simon did. But it is a perfect picture of what Jesus was doing, heading to Calvary to do what, or to do and uh, on behalf of those, well, we see what he was on his way to do and on whose behalf he was doing it. We see the innocent for the guilty. We see the guilty carrying the cross that they deserved that the innocent would die upon in their place. And we know that the women who were mourning and lamenting had missed the point altogether because of how Jesus responds to them. He says in verse 28, this is the first statement that he makes, he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and on the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? He says, don't, he says, your weeping is for naught, because you're weeping for the wrong things. You're weeping, weeping for the wrong person or the wrong people, right? Because he was willingly doing what the Father had called him to do. He was willingly fulfilling the will of the Father. And he was doing it on behalf of those that the Father had given him, of whom he would not lose one. 
which, is, which are words from John. He told them that you should actually be weeping for yourselves. You should be weeping for your children. Actually, you should be weeping for all of those whom you represent. Because as he said several times, we've seen several times, he's told them judgment is coming. Judgment is on the way. The nation was going to be judged for their rejection of their Savior. Judgment was coming because they were rejecting Him. And He said, even if He who was innocent, if He who was innocent and faithful was going to the cross, they could bet it was sure that those who were guilty and faithless would experience judgment. And of course, we know from our study over the last several weeks that he was speaking specifically of the judgment of Israel and Jerusalem that would take place in AD 70, but we also know that that was pointing to a greater and more stricter judgment, a more full and final judgment that would come at the end of the age. They were obviously crying tears of sadness, right? And and obviously and rightly so. Jesus had been unjustly treated. Jesus had been violently beaten. And now He was going to be heinously murdered by the end of the day. But Jesus pointed out that what they really needed to be doing, rather than crying for Him, rather than crying tears of, of sadness, They were to be crying tears of repentance. Feeling sorry for Him while kind and compassionate would not save them. Salvation only springs from the soil of a heart that hates and is sorrowful for sin. And He wanted them to know that. And the question we need to ask ourselves tonight is, for what do we cry? For what do we lament? For what do we mourn? Do we mourn simply His unjust treatment? Or do we mourn our sin? In the words of Philip Ryken, Jesus wants to spare us from the wrath of God while there is still time. He's not looking to get our pity and our sympathy, but our repentance and faith. So again, do we mourn for Him or do we mourn for ourselves and our sin? Do we pity Jesus or do, do we pity ourselves and our shame and our guilt? Do we grieve for His experience on the cross? Or do we grieve for what sent him there? And it is a distinction that needs to be made. Well, the multitude of people um, and the mourning women were not the only ones walking to Golgotha with him. Uh, There were two others as well. And the only thing Luke says about them is that they were criminals. But while he doesn't describe their crimes, he describes their punishment, and they were to be put to death with Jesus. In verse 33, uh, in verse 33, Luke continues this concise description by, 
making one of the most matter-of-fact statements in all of Scripture. He doesn't provide this detailed sketch of, of the apparatus that was going to be used in His crucifixion. He doesn't recount the procedural steps that needed to be gone through in order to bring it about. He doesn't even paint a vivid word picture of the effects of crucifixion upon the human body. He simply says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals. It doesn't get any more straightforward than that. The only description He gives is, is that one of the criminals was on His right and one of, one of them was on His left. And I believe the words of one author are worth sharing at this point. He says, such brevity should warn against over-dramatizing and making a melodrama of Jesus' sufferings. In other words, we don't have to turn the description of the crucifixion into some sort of extravagant, um, sensational theatrical work for, for us to understand what happened and for the sake of eliciting some emotional response. Was it, in the words of Ralph Davis, a grimy, gritty, blood-soaked, flesh-mangling, dirty historical fact? Absolutely. But Luke's point is, in this direct statement, is that it was a historical fact. The simplicity and brevity of his description is, right, it, it speaks to his confidence, it speaks to the confidence that he wants others to have, those who, that are reading his letter to have, regarding the, the factual nature of the crucifixion. It was a historical event, but it wasn't just a historical event uh, it was a historical event with historical meaning and, and deep theological significance. Yes, Christ died. And the fact that He died is in Paul's words of first importance. But even the historicity of that falls flat unless we know the reason it happened. And Luke says, and Jesus says, and Paul says that it happened for our sins. And that brings us to the second statement Jesus makes. In verse 34, He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Now, there's an ongoing debate as far as who is included in that pronoun they. Was it the execution squad that included those who were um, casting lots for his clothes? Uh, was it the Roman officials? Was it the religious leaders? Was it the people? Was it all of the above? I lean toward the, taking the position that it includes no less than the execution squad. But just because it included the, ex, um, the execution squad, I don't think that, um, that it excluded others as well. I, I think it could have included the crowd who was watching. Luke says is watching. It could have included the religious leaders who were scoffing. I really think it could have included anyone that was there. But at no minimum, it was those who were actually putting Him on the cross physically. And I think that it could have included anyone because at some point... When those who were there, when their hearts would change, either after His death or after His burial or after His resurrection or after the ascension, they would need to go back to that moment that they heard the words. 
Because apart from them, it would have been almost impossible to ever believe that they could be a recipient of God's mercy, having been a part of such heinous sin against the Son of God. They would need to know that God did not hold that particular sin against them because Jesus had prayed on their behalf and said, Father, forgive them. They needed to have heard that if they were ever going to believe it to be true by faith. And of course, that means that when we think about that, that means that really, beloved, no one is out of the reach of God. No one is out of His reach. Again, in the words of Pastor Riken, if Jesus was willing for the Father to forgive the very men who murdered Him, then what sinner is beyond the reach of the mercy of God? Surely anyone who repents will be saved. And the truth is the same for everyone in the room tonight. There is no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven by our Savior. God is merciful and loving. Jesus is not only willing to forgive, He secured the forgiveness of those who would repent and believe. He's paid their debt. He's paid their debt in full. I love these words of Charles Spurgeon. He said, now, into that pronoun they, I feel I can crawl. The same is true for all of us. Well, for the hard-hearted, hearing Jesus pray for them wouldn't have been something that humbled them. It would have incited them, and we see that it does that. In verse 35, Luke says that while the people were simply watching everything unfold, the, the leaders were strutting their stuff. And they began scoffing at him. Their rationale was, well, he claimed to be the Messiah. So if he's the Messiah, have him bring himself down. Have him save himself. He saved others. Let him save himself. And of course, the soldiers join in. Have a little wine, Jesus. It'll take the edge off. But of course, it'd just be easier if you saved yourself and brought yourself down. You're king after all. And not to be left out, one of the criminals, we'll say it was the one on our left, he joined in as well. He let Jesus have it with this vitriolic abuse. And in the midst he said, you're the Christ, save yourself. And us. And in each case, it was just another example of ignorance. They're all asking him to save himself. They're all asking him to save them. The problem was if he saved himself, he couldn't save them. If he saved himself, they'd be condemned. Because the only way for them to be saved was for him to do what he had come to do, and that was to die on behalf of sinners, to give his life as a ransom for many. He would have to die that others might live. 
There would be no saving of them if he saved himself. If he saved them, he'd have to, he would have to offer himself as a ransom. He would have to offer himself to pay for their freedom. And the, and the first of only three that we know of at that time that would understand that, who understood that, at least, again, on that day was the other criminal. And when I say he got it, when he understood it, he really got it. He really understood what was going on. Look at verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We don't know the timing, but at some point he was regenerated. And I say that because at the time when his partner in crime on the left was blaspheming Jesus, he was rebuking him. And the basis of his rebuke was he understood who God was. He understood his holiness. He understood that he deserved to be esteemed. He was deserving of reverence and awe. particularly in light of the fact that he was innocent. They were, they were justly guilty. They were on those crosses because they had earned that. But he hadn't. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was innocent. He was unjustly serving the consequences that he was under. And he also, you notice, he also acknowledges Christ's authority. He also acknowledges his eternal kingdom, despite the fact that he couldn't see it. He knows the entrance into the kingdom was by grace alone and that there was nothing that he could do to earn it or merit it. And so he does what he, what, the only thing that he knows to do and that is to ask the one and only Savior of sinners because he knew he was the only hope for salvation. In the words of Ralph Davis, here is, here is one who believes in a kingdom he cannot see in a king wearing a crown of thorns, whose throne is a cross, whose robe is nakedness, whose glory is a body shredded by Roman whips, whose court consists of caustic blasphemers, and whose enemies had apparently conquered him. Such faith must be a miracle worked by God. And notice how Jesus, uh, Jesus responds. This is the third statement he makes. In verse 43, he says, Truly, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Without hesitating, Jesus accepted what the criminal had, had said as a credible testimony. He accepted it as a credible testimony of his acknowledgement of his sin of his need of a Savior, and of his faith in Christ, and his faith in the Messiah, the one and only Savior of sinners. And he unequivocally proclaimed that the man would be with him in paradise immediately that day. Jesus nor the man beside him would make any stops along the way. And this word paradise indicates that the blessing 
wasn't just the place. The blessing was that they would be together. For the criminal, he would be in the presence of Jesus. Christ and the man would would dwell together. They would be in the presence of one another. And beloved, though death waits, we learn it is not final. For those in Christ, for those in Christ, death is but a falling asleep and awakening immediately in the presence of Christ. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Bishop J.C. Rao put it this way, the word today tells us that the very moment a believer dies, his soul is in happiness and in safekeeping. His full redemption is not yet come. His perfect bliss will not begin before the resurrection morning, but there is no mysterious delay, no season of suspense, no purgatory between his death and his taste of reward. In the day that he breathes his last, he goes to paradise. In the hour that he departs, he is with Christ. Is that not good news? I pray that that assurance would give you both rest and hope, regardless of your circumstances tonight regardless of your age. Well, the final statement he makes is found in verse 46. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and two signs take place. The first is a supernatural sign where darkness falls. The sun cannot shine. It is a sign of evil and sorrow and judgment. And at the same time, we have a second sign, and the veil in the tabernacle that separated the holy, uh, the holy place from the most holy of places, that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, uh, that was it's estimated to be anywhere, interestingly enough, from 30 feet to 90 feet tall and 30 feet wide. It's about an inch thick. It's, it's tightly woven material. That is rent. It, it, is, it is split from top to bottom. Again, a supernatural sign. And it signified the fact, what we've already learned, it signified the fact that the temple was now obsolete. God's presence had departed. His glory had departed from the tabernacle. And it was Christ Himself who who would be the one and only priest who would provide access into the presence of God, not just once a year, but that access would be unlimited and free. God's abiding presence was in the Lord Jesus Christ. And His people would dwell with Him. Again, in the words of Ralph Davis, the one who was despised and rejected by men has caused us to be welcomed and received by God. And it was then in these final moments that Luke records not only what Jesus said, but how he said it. 
Luke says, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then having breathed breathed his last, he died. Christ used words from Psalm 31, but he added a very personal touch in that he added the word Father. For Jesus, they were words of trust and confidence and hope in the midst of his enemies, in the midst of his suffering. He was resting in his Father. He was resting and submitting to him and his will. But notice, he called out with a loud voice. We read past that, I think, rather quickly, and we forget, or we don't We don't take the time to consider the significance of him calling out with a loud voice. Consider everything that he had been through, from the beating to hanging on the cross. We would expect a a still small voice, right? A whisper, not having the energy. And yet he has it. He has the physical ability to call out with a loud voice. And that tells us that his last breath was actually an act of his will. He had decided when to die. His life was not being taken from him. He was handing himself over, just as he said he would. Remember the words from John 10, Christ said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Yes, we, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks. He was murdered at the hands of men, Right? The Jewish leaders handed him over. The people handed him over to the Romans. The Romans crucified him. So it was at the hands of men. But nothing was taken from him that he did not give. Nothing was taken from him that was not a part of of the Father's plan. All authority had been given to him in, in heaven and on earth. And he determined when the time was... And he exercised that authority to the end, and he died well, so well that a centurion who had more than likely participated in the mocking and the scoffing, who had more than likely participated in the casting of lots for his, for his garments, not only praised him, not only proclaimed his innocence, but Mark tells us in his, in his version of What took place that he proclaimed him to be the Son of God. It was just as much of a miracle as the sun not shining and the veil ripping. Because again, it was a work. We read back in chapter 2. And it was a fulfillment of the promise that we read back in chapter 2. If you remember, he said that he would be a light to the Gentiles. It's also a fulfillment of the promise in John 12, right? That if he be lifted up, that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, will be drawn to him. Oh, that you and I would die that well. 
Oh, that we would die trusting in the love and the will of God and resting in the hope that those who are in Christ are simply falling asleep and will awake, having laid their heads down, that they will awake immediately in His presence. And while our bodies are placed in the graves, our souls will immediately be in the presence of our Savior. And one day we look forward to that time when our souls and our bodies will be reunited, our glorified bodies will be reunited with our souls and we will dwell with Him eternally. Again, that is such good news. We ask the question, why do we have that confidence now? Why can we be so confident? Why can we be so assured? And we have the two primary reasons provided in our text. The first is because the tomb was occupied. We read about that in verses 50 to 56, right? His death was certain. It was also necessary, by the way, because he said he must die. But we want to focus on the certainty of his death because that seems to be that which comes under question. But Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, would not have put his position and reputation and even his life on the line if Jesus had been alive. Pilate would not have given Joseph the body had he not been dead. And we learn from Mark that Pilate actually makes sure sure that he's dead. His clothes wouldn't have been wrapped in linen. He wouldn't have been laid in the tomb. The, wooden, the women wouldn't have shown up at that particular tomb and then left to go prepare the ointment and the spices and then return to that very same place if they didn't expect him to be there. And they expected him to be there because he was dead. If there was some sort of conspiracy... The last witnesses that he would have called for, that Luke would have called forward, or anyone would have called for, but Luke would have called for was Joseph, right? He was a former enemy, and these women. All of them would have been discounted immediately. Why was Luke so confident? He was confident because it was a historical fact. He didn't have to drum anything up. This wasn't some type of conspiracy theory. But we can also have confidence, not only because of the occupied tomb, but because of the empty tomb that we read about in verses 1 to 12. Because not only was his death certain and his death necessary, but his resurrection was certain and necessary. You remember, I mentioned to you at Easter that some Some take up a wide variety of excuses for why Jesus isn't in the tomb, and they say things like, well, he was actually cast into a mass grave, he was actually uh, fed to the dogs, his body was stolen, but in the end, none of those explanations hold up. They all fall apart. In the end, those who deny his resurrection are simply denying an objective historical event that actually occurred. And yes, when the, when the men first hear the testimony of the women in verse 11, what does it say? They, they thought it was an idle tale. They didn't believe them. But all of them would soon join the women and Peter. And they would believe it to be true. And they would all die for that belief. 
He did rise from the dead. And the basis upon which they and we stand on that belief is simply His Word. Notice verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how He told you? While He was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? And they remembered His words. And returning to the tomb, or from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Ralph Davis says, the most cogent reason for believing Jesus' resurrection is the word of Jesus. This may serve as a word of correction in our own day. We may tend to, or we tend to be a part of a touchy-feely generation. He says, we prize the experiential, and there can be a danger in that. Because the basis of the resurrection is the word of our Savior, not the depth of our emotion. Our lives are anchored by the word of Jesus, not by the intensity of our feelings. And as we learned at Easter, because of the resurrection, right, our faith is not in vain. We are not still in our sins. Our glory has been defeated, we've been justified, we've been sanctified, we will one day be glorified. The seeds of our glorification have already been planted in His resurrection. He has paid our debt. He's paid our debt in full, and the resurrection says that God has accepted that payment. The Father's wrath has been turned away. His favor has been turned toward those who believe. We've been reconciled to Him. We've been, again, we've been saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day we will be saved from the presence of sin because He is alive. And therefore, our hope is not in vain. Our hope is not in vain. Christ rose bodily and was the first to do so and defeated death in the process His words are true. He who believes in me will never die in a spiritual sense. Paul's words, I've already said, Paul's words are also true. Being absent from the body is being present with the Lord. In our striving to live godly lives, our pursuit of holiness, our desire to please the Lord in all respects, even in our persecution and suffering, is not in vain. We're we're never to be those who are pitied. Our hope is sure. There are a lot of good reasons to believe in the resurrection, right? The empty tomb, um, the testimony of witnesses in Scripture, the existence of the church, the worship of the church, but the most important evidence and witness is the word of the Lord Jesus. We must stand or fall on that word. Those in our passage had not seen the risen Christ any more than we have seen the risen Christ at that point, right? They believed because they remembered His words. And we have those same words. Philip Ryken says, according to the word of the gospel, Jesus is not among the dead, but among the living. 
He was crucified for the forgiveness of all our sins. His sacrifice is accepted by God, and now He has risen from the grave. Death is not the end for us, but by faith we have the free gift of eternal life. Now the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven, shining in glory and ruling the universe. One day soon He will raise us up with Him forever. In John 6... After a lot of the disciples had left, Jesus looks at the apostles and he says, you going to go too? Peter says, no. He says, we're not going anywhere because you have words of life. And I'll ask the same question that I began with. What will we do with his words? He has given us words of life. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word, this word from you with faith and love? Would you allow allow us to lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives? Bless those who have heard your word preached and may the seeds sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.